Hello, and welcome to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. In this fourth of a four-part series called Vision Under the Tree, Dorje Lopan, Dr. Han Lai, discusses the basics of meditation as practiced and taught by the historical Buddha. These teachings discuss citta bhavana, or the development or cultivation of the heart-mind, that is at the core of Buddha's way of meditating. Urban Dharma is a Buddhist temple in the heart of Asheville, North Carolina. We are supported by your generosity and by our online store, TibetanSpirit.com. To learn more about us, come visit our temple in person, or look us up online at UdharmaNC.com. Thanks for listening. So, welcome back to uh, our uh, Fall Sundays program, Vision Under the Tree. Um, even if this is your first time attending this class, uh, and to the rest who have been attending, uh, just a reminder that uh, after this, uh, each of these classes are available for listening uh, through uh, podcast download from our website. Go to udharmanc.com. Under the tab resource, uh, resources, under there, look around, and you'll find it. So that's one place. Another place is on YouTube, uh, which is what we're live streaming now. Uh, after the live stream, it gets converted automatically into a, a YouTube video. So that's also available. If you go look for the channel called Urban Dharma NC, uh, it should be on there, except for the very first one, I think, which we did not, uh, and maybe even first and second, we did not live stream. Uh, we just recently started using uh, YouTube live stream. Uh, so the purpose of this particular course is to go back, for some of us, revisit for some of us, visit for the first time uh, the Buddhist approach to meditation in its kind of most fundamental uh, form. And in fact, if you have been attending uh, the last three Sundays, you might have noticed that I have said several times that in fact, I don't think we should even emphasize so much about form and technique. Which is not to say, I do think that in the Buddhist tradition, it has a real wealth of forms and techniques when it comes to uh, training the heart-mind. And to many people, that in fact is sort of the attraction of Buddhism. I've told this anecdote several times, I'll say it again. I remember one time we hosted, not here, in a different place, uh, when I was teaching at Warren Wilson College. The Buddhist group there, we hosted a um, Buddhist teacher that uh, was living in Asheville for a short period of time before him and his wife moved out west. 
And uh, when he came to us uh, and introduced himself, he introduced uh, himself as a Buddhist Baptist. Or was it Baptist Buddhist? Uh, I forgot which one was first. But both were there. Uh, and so he gave a little bit of his uh, autobiography, uh, which included uh, being an ordained member uh, and went to seminary and was uh, then ordained and uh, is a Baptist preacher. Uh, probably no longer actively preaching at a church, but nonetheless, that's the background. And so later in the, uh, the program, somebody, you know, when he said, ask me questions, somebody asked, could you elaborate on Baptist Buddhist? <laughs> so he said, okay, I became Baptist. He said, I became Christian uh, because I was um, really taken by uh, certain lines from the Bible. And he said, yes, we know the Bible has a lot of other things, but um, this line that says, uh, to love your neighbor as yourself, there's no greater commandment. And he said, that was what you know, sold him on Christianity. And because of his cultural background, then uh, he be, you know, became Baptist, became a Baptist preacher. And so he says, that's why. He said, but after a while, he felt that, though that was the greatest commandment, he could not find ways to arrive at that position from within the resources that was given him within the Baptist tradition. So he said, in the end, he had to look for ways of training that. And so he found Buddhism. And, uh, and that, you know, uh, of course, I'm sure many Baptists will disagree, but what this illustrates is, you know, kind of quite common that a lot of people are attracted to Buddhism because um, there is a wealth of techniques and forms to train the mind. So hence, all sorts of different meditation traditions and techniques and maybe because the way that Buddhism is presented in this culture is that it's not really religion. There is nothing to convert to. Uh, you don't have to change your name, per se. You don't have to change your diet, per se. You don't have to change anything, per se. But you can enhance whatever it is that you're already doing with certain techniques and forms. As a result of that, sometimes, sometimes, just sometimes, there is an overemphasis on technique and forms. But for this course, and generally I would say, kind of, mm, people who say they want to study with me, uh, I will say to them, and they will find out that... Uh, I don't emphasize so much on technique and form per se, but more importantly is to relate to techniques and forms as methods that are given for us to try, to apply, 
to experiment. You have to take it to heart and do it. You can think a little bit about it, and I, and I encourage you to think about it, but you should not confuse the thinking about it and the doing it. Those are two different things. Then some people get very good at doing it, meaning sticking to a particular form, to a particular technique, but not understanding that the form and the technique uh, is to change the mind, is to train the heart-mind. Is to train the mind. So this work of uh, training the mind, yeah, this work of training the mind, uh, this work of um, mm, training the heart mind so that you change it uh, presumes certain things, assumes certain things, okay? which is uh, right now we're confused <laughs> and we are distracted as a result. And that distraction is what causes what Buddhists call dukkha. Last week I talked about dukkha. The etymology of that is ka is space. Duk is unhappy. To be in an unhappy space. Possibly physical space, but more importantly, to be in an unhappy mental emotional space, to inhabit an unhappy spiritual space is what is defined as dukkha. The opposite of dukkha is sukha. Su is happy. To have sukha, to be in sukha, is to be in a happy place. In order to not be stuck in dukkha, in unhappy places, Buddha says, we need to see things as they are. So that's one way of understanding the purpose, the goal, and the approach of meditation. Now again, we say meditation is a technique, but again, sometimes, uh, overemphasizing technique makes it, creates the problem of techniques here, results over there. Yeah, then, then we get caught up in this, you know, am I applying the technique right? 
or is this technique the best technique? And then you add uh, our American can-do attitude and extreme pragmatism attitude, right? Then can-do, very pragmatic, and also very impatient. Then if it doesn't work immediately, uh, I got to go find another technique. Or worse still. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. I've, I've heard about that already. Okay, what else can you tell me? <laughs> yeah, what else can you tell me? Right. So we should not relate to the technique, the method, in such a kind of... Um, uh, in, in such, a, such a kind of instrumental way. So very helpful is that, uh, for example, in the Soto Zen tradition, the founder of the tradition, Dogen, says, or, or apparently according to the story of Dogen, I don't know if you are familiar with him, uh, 13th century Japanese Buddhist monk uh, went to India, uh, I mean went to China, yeah, to train and to study, and then came back and started a new Zen tradition in Japan. Apparently that his sort of spiritual or existential crisis is reconciling the relationship between practice and awakening. Right? Conventionally speaking, we, we, we understand the relationship between practice and awakening is practice, 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 practice when? Mm-hmm. Awakening. Or Practice, 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 a little bit of awakening. Practice, 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 a little bit more of awakening. Practice, 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 maybe a little bit more of awakening. That is if everything goes right. Yeah? And then you go, well, in my case, it's practice, 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 lost. Practice, 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 <laughs> lost. Practice, 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 <laughs> fell asleep. Practice, 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 a <laughs> little bit of awakening. Practice, 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 fell back asleep. But in whichever case, right, so then there is a question of what is the relationship between practice and result or awakening. So apparently Dogen, he said that he studied with everyone in Japan. Nobody could answer that question, so he said, I have to go to China. And if you think these days it's a hassle to travel, wait till you're in 13th century. (laughs) Majority of people who travel never made it. <laughs> Some end up making more humans in, in between traveling and arriving. <laughs> but a lot of things happen, you know. So he went. Crossing the ocean was just treacherous. And he went to China and he came back because he got his question answered. And the answer to that question of what is the relationship between practice and awakening, he says, to practice is to awaken. So in the Soto tradition, the form of meditation they called is often translated into English as just sitting. Just sit. Why? Because to sit is to awaken. 
Uh, so that whole kind of uh, duality between right practicing and getting there is collapsed. Yeah, sort of like in a more mundane way, we say right uh, the 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 kind of the journey itself uh, is what it is about. Right? So that's a useful. Uh, kind of point of view to keep uh, in our heart as we apply uh, the methods. Don't hope for. Don't wait for. Don't get distracted by some kind of ideal result that you think would come out on the other side waiting for you. But that in, if you can kind of experience the immediacy of awakening in one moment. Then we say the Buddha mind is present in that moment. If you're able to remain with awareness, remain awakened, for one moment, in that very moment, that is awakening. That is the result that you're looking for. It's right in front of you, right under your nose. Then you say, well, if it's right in front of me, right under my nose, why do I always lose it? Where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? Why? Because we're distracted. Right? And in particular, or worse, where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? (laughs) Maybe that's even more appropriate, you know? Not even this, right? It's like, where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? And so here... What are we distracted by? I think we're distracted by the notion of something that exists beyond this moment. Right? So we think to be awakened is to be aware 24 hours. But 24 hours is a concept. And of course, a concept cannot really deliver. Oh, oh, you say, oh, to be awakened, to experience the result of meditation. Hmm? I should be stress-free for at least six hours a day. (laughs) Or... At least the hour that I have determined, I'm going to meditate. Then, of course, you're going to not see awareness, not be aware, because you've been carried away by a concept and hoping that the concept 
would deliver results. The concepts cannot deliver results. So every moment in that one moment, right there, to sit is to wake up, and then to sit is to wake up, and to sit is to wake up. Then your body says, "I'm tired. I'm checking out." <laughs> Even falling asleep. Isn't for five minutes, or fifteen minutes, or even one minute. Even falling asleep is momentary. Followed by another moment of falling asleep, followed by another moment of falling asleep, or being distracted by a whole chain of thoughts. It's also momentary. In fact, there is no chain. Chain is an abstract. When we say chain of thoughts, because past, present, and future cannot inhabit the same space. Past thought, present thought, future thought, right? That's how we can kind of come up with the idea of a chain of thoughts, right? Me yesterday, me today, me tomorrow. But that me, that I. Merely exists as an abstract, as a concept, right? By definition, past, present, and future don't inhabit the same space. So where is the I? The I only exists in so far as that moment, but in that moment. Which is constantly not that moment. What I? Buddha's teachings about no self or not self. It's not really about. Then it's absolutely not about denying the self. It's not about denying the self. We say it's getting us to notice the impossibility of an enduring self. The impossibility of an enduring self. That's what. The training is aiming at. The training is not aimed at convincing you or making you get rid of any self, because to have a self makes you a bad person. But the impossibility <coughs> huh, of an enduring self is an invitation to pay attention and see if. It's possible to have an enduring self. Yes. What is meant by enduring in this sense, like having multiple lifetimes, or? Oh, between this and next moment, it's enduring enough. 
So rather than the whole, or maybe not rather than, but there's the whole stream of consciousness, like the idea of the chain of consciousness and our concept of self. And then there's the enduring self that one might experience in the moment. Like the way you No, there's no enduring self. Yeah. Like that the self could change every moment, and so there's no like definite, is that what you mean? Like finite, the self like, could change. The self could change. You're already assuming. I know it's a problem with language. Right? The self changes. Very, very subtly, we're, we're already signed on to an enduring self that changes. But in fact, the whole gamut of change is what we gloss over as self. The whole gamut of change is what we gloss over as self. Like when you say, this is how I am, like I, like we say these sentences so often of like, I'm like this, or well when this happens I get really stressed out. Yes. Like that defining, Yeah. like yeah. that creates an enduring self. Yes, mm. which is impossible. Mm-hmm. Which, yes. So, um, so is the concept or the experience of awareness uh-huh. experiencing non-self? Uh, you could say that. Yeah. Yeah. If when awareness is directly experienced, mm-hmm. uh, notions of self are not at work. Yes. Is it self-evident when you have a moment of awakening and you'll just know that it is? Uh, awakening here is in the sense of awareness. Yeah, not 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 you know the the kind of classic you know Buddha sat under the tree twenty five hundred years ago no, you know Big Bang. <laughs> but if you have a meditation practice uh-huh. and you experience being awake, uh-huh. being aware, yes, it's you'll, you'll know. It's just something. Yes, you know. yes, yes, yes. And it will be qualitatively different from the moment before that was not awakened or aware. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Will it be sukha? Hmm? Will it be sukha? <laughs> if we pay attention if we pay attention yes how is the non-self related to the uh, western concept of soul of an enduring soul mm. do you want them related or not I don't see how are you trying to fit them together? Right. So I, I'm trying to get to understand what, why why do you want them to fit or not fit? So I guess when you die, I think a lot of Western 
prayers think that there's a part of you that will continue on, your soul will continue on. Yeah, sure. But that's not the same as, that's not the same as, Self. I think I just need to have a little think about this. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Can they be in agreement, those two ideas? Do you think any of that Baptist guy? <laughs> <laughs> so you're asking, is it is it possible to believe in some sort of enduring self and also practice the kind of meditation that exposes the impossibility of self? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like an enduring soul. Oh, I see. That is like awareness itself without any attachments uh-huh. of, of like identity. Uh-huh. Can you believe that and also... You can believe whatever you want. <laughs> not you know, not being snarky here, but that's the Buddha's answer. Like, well, you, you can believe whatever you want. Uh, his position is more that uh, I, I'm not interested in metaphysics. He says, I'm not interested in um, positing or not positing entities that I don't see how it affects you right now. So I think in the beginning I pointed out the Buddha is kind of odd in the in, in the realm, in the world of spiritual figures in kind of resolutely uh, taking the position that uh, let's not have our starting point be on this thing that because in his own time his contemporaries were very invested in in the notion in in various notions you know with differences here and there about a spirit an indwelling spirit. Uh, and the Buddha kind of said, uh-uh, irrelevance to what I'm doing. So last week I think I said that even the term spirituality is a little bit off if you want to get, you know, you know, pay attention to diction. Buddhist position don't even talk about the spirit. It talks about body and mind. It talks about physical processes and mental emotional processes. And it says that we can all directly experience these two sets of processes. And that happiness and suffering comes from particular types of relationship towards uh, and with these physical and mental emotional processes. So he says, look at the mind. And here we're not talking about mind, you know, with a capital M. And here we're not talking about that. He's just saying, look at, look at, you know, look, look at how your heart mind works. Like right now. And then if you look, then you're like, oh, 
it seems like it just goes on and on and on and on. When is it just going to shut up? <laughs> then we think, you know, I want to meditate so that it will shut up. Shut up! Shut up! Then the more you yell at it, right, the more it echoes back. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> See that the Buddha was interested in. You know, once people try to take that into, ah, perhaps that's yourself echoing. And he's like, uh, uh-uh. uh I'm not going with you over there because I don't know what to do with that. He's not a romantic, that's for sure. He's an empiricist. Yeah, but not in a cold, uncaring sort of, you know, empiricist. Uh, ultimately, matters of the heart. You know, he had great concern about. Uh, but he he quite, you know, refused to kind of get into what he considered to be. Uh, he called um, a thicket of views. Don't get caught up in a thicket of views and opinions. Now, of course, he has some views and opinions. Uh, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, he has some views and opinions. But his views and opinions are about the pointlessness of getting caught up in a thicket of views and opinions. He says, learn to just simplify. Learn to just let go. Learn to just pay attention. Don't 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 think up too many concepts about what this is. But if 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 there's one thing that we can do that we need to do, right, is to, to pay attention to, and, and there are many many ways of talking about this, even across Buddhist traditions. So one way to talk about this is to talk about um, mind or heart. Right? and the activities of mind. And to try to see how those are two different things. Not two completely unrelated, clearly they're related, but, but they are sort of like two, two ends of a particular spectrum. Uh, but right now, we spend all our time with activities of the heart, activities of the mind, and we have no acquaintance, no familiarity with the heart of the mind itself. Can I ask a kind of dumb question? Like, how do you get if like this is at the root of Buddhism and what the Buddha thought? to a place of having like the Dalai Lama and like this whole organization of all these different structures and hierarchy like that are all expressions of Buddhism when like it sounds like it's so much simpler than that is it just that like everybody eventually is coming to such similar realizations that those structures make sense or is like 
it kind of like other religions where these sort of very human like fault um, you know faulty structures have been designed around beautiful ideas like Christianity and like lots of other religions that have like all sorts of kind of random power dynamics in them that don't really have to do with the root of what's center is it like how do you get I mean how do you sort of justify having like a Dalai Lama with like who's like reincarnated if there's no interest in like whether a soul is the Buddha taught multiple lifetimes mm-hmm. yeah so you know that much I think was clear that he taught that multiple lifetimes uh in a way, too complicated to answer this, mm-hmm. except to say that uh, not just Buddhism, I think any religion, any tradition, uh, was born was born, you know, in the context of a particular vision. You know, how literally you want to take vision, some traditions more literally than others, right? A particular vision, a particular awakening, a particular realization. And then that is transmitted from person to person and human beings are social animals social animals build social structures good or bad you know I think it's up to each of you to decide I'm a I'm, I was you know trained kind of professionally as a college professor specializing in religious studies so from where I stand, I have a lot more tolerance for, you know, what other people might say craziness. But I say, hey, well, it's human beings. Uh, human beings are wonderful and terrible. Sometimes I feel I'm wonderful. Other times I think I'm terrible. There you have it, you know. Uh, so. Buddhism, or teachings of Buddha, primarily has been transmitted in the context of religion. Religion as a category of human experience and human ability to uh, imagine. So I think you can look at it both sides, you know, the power of imagination. I mean, I mean, simplicity that I talk about here is the kind of temporarily take us back to right that that core uh, then secretly what I'm not telling you which now I guess I have to tell you is that after you get the core we'll introduce you to some crazy things hopefully not sinister crazy things but crazy things because we're human beings. <laughs> because, you know, this essence always kind of has an outer shell. Uh, and some of these crazy things involve, you know, yeah, how many bodhisattvas can dance on the head of a pin? <laughs> Let's start counting. Why not, right? <laughs> And to some people, that is like, you know, an insult, you know, they're counting how many angels can dance in a pit. 
But to others, it's like, when can we start? <laughs> it's like, what? You would rather go shopping? Hello? Right? I mean, it's all kind of like... Tibet was not a Shangri-La. It was messy. But despite all the mess, they decided at some point, as a culture, the way they practice conspicuous consumption is around religion. <laughs> so all the great and the horrible things are in that picture. We as a country decided that our conspicuous consumption will be around the military. <laughs> Both good and bad. Yeah, it has stopped you know, terrible killings because of our military. But hello, also a lot of terrible killings because of our military. Right? So, so that's the human condition. Question? Yes. Um, just before her question, I was having concepts around spirit and soul. Yes. Reincarnation yes. and um, no permanence in terms of self. Yes. So I don't want to get too caught yes. up to yes. overthink it, yeah. but yeah. I didn't know if you had any ideas around reincarnation specifically and how they might mm -hmm. connect the, or not. The preferred kind of Buddhist kind of uh, vocabulary is rebirth with the emphasis that yeah, you're birthed, you're born again and again and again and again. As to what that you is, right? Yeah. Um, mm, A vocabulary kind of was developed around that uh, to try to kind of better explain, right? So, so Buddhism is Buddhist teachings is peculiar in that the Buddha simultaneously talked about multiple lifetimes, as well as no enduring entity. Uh, and I think later Buddhists. Uh, had to go through a whole bunch of, you know, kind of mental gymnastics to kind of make it all gel together. Right? But I think if we look at the early sources, you will see that uh, the Buddha did not kind of find them to be contradictory. And so let me offer some kind of instances. If you look at early sources. Whenever Buddha made any statements about there not being an enduring self, there not being a self, so this phrase anatta or anatmant often translated as not-self or no-self. Yeah. Grammatically, you can translate it as not or no, no-self no or no-soul, even in actually earlier translations, like Victorian period, English translations of an anatta has it as no-soul. Yeah. 
What's interesting is that if you look at the places whereby the Buddha talked about not self or no soul or this this term anatta, right? It's never when somebody, and there were lots of those bodies, came up to him and say, "Hey, Gautama," which is his family name, right? Because Buddha means awakened one. Right? Now, not many people believe that he was awakened, even if many people yeah, within the fold thought he was awakened. So, you know, people would come up and say, Hey, Gautama, do you believe in an enduring soul or not? In those instances in the early sources where he was point blank asked that question, you know what the, the sources tell us? They tell us nothing, literally nothing, as in the Buddha refused to answer. Do you believe that there's an enduring self or not? <laughs> then the person's like, hello, are you still there? He's like, yes. So what do you say? He says, I have nothing to say. And frustrated, they leave. Okay, so then you have his faithful attendant and uh, uh, cousin Ananda. Ananda will say, "Lord, why didn't you answer him?" He said, and this is really interesting. When he said, he said, "If I said yes, there is a self." The consequences of that is that then he might think that I believe that it doesn't matter what you do because this indwelling self is permanent, unchanging. Yeah, this enduring self. So why does it matter what we do? He would have that conclusion. And if I said, no, I don't believe in one, then he might conclude that, what's the point of doing anything if there isn't one? In which he says, both results are not my intention. And part of the point too, he is saying, and in any case, they say, this person didn't come here to ask a real question. He said, this person is just caught up in the thicket of views. But, whenever someone comes to him, anguish, having lost a child, having lost a home, having lost a spouse in existential pain, then Buddha says, you say you are painful. You say you are suffering. Now give me the self that is suffering. 
and I will pacify it for you. So the, the person said, uh, I don't know what to give you. And Buddha will say, ah, so you cannot find anything. You cannot find anything. It's what you just said that is bearing this load. I said, are you sure? Look deeper. Who is this I that is carrying this suffering? And then through this process of having this person reflect, analyze, think, contemplate, this person arrives at the position, arrives at the conclusion. The reason I suffer is because I have so strongly in my mind this notion of an enduring self that has just been insulted, that has just been you know, wronged. But when I actually go looking for what exactly has been insulted and wronged, I cannot find. And that not finding, oh my gosh, it's such a relief. And Buddha says, you're fixed. <laughs> Which means, his teachings are given as therapy. Therapeutic. When he does talk about rebirth, it's often, often, again, not as a, a doctrinal point that he is defending, not as a philosophical point yeah, that, that he has to kind of like, um, kind of uh, uphold and defend. But whenever he talks about rebirth multiple lifetimes, it's always in the context of you cannot act with only your short-term happiness in mind. You cannot act by simply watching how other people are prospering or suffering right now. And on that basis say, that was a good action or skillful action, or appropriate action, or inappropriate action. In one of the places where he, he, he clearly talks about multiple lifetimes, and it's very telling, you know. He, there was one case where uh, somebody said, mm, or somebody came to him and said, you know, one of our people, unspecified. One of our people within our fold was teaching his students that uh, cause and effect, karma, you only have to look at it right now. No need to look at it from a perspective of multiple lifetimes. He said, Lord, do you say that is skillful? And Buddha says, no. He says, that's unskillful. 
Then the disciple said, Why do you say so? And he says, he says, If our belief in the um, you know that cause and effect are related, and if we limit it to only right now, he says, then you are going to find a lot of people having a jolly good time doing very terrible things. And he says, and if you think that doing horrible things is the answer to having a jolly good time by observing that, then you get yourself into trouble. So he's almost saying, by necessity, you have to suspend your disbelief and say, they're having a jolly good time now because of positive actions that they have done in the past that have resulted in this. But now, all the terrible things that they're doing, they will ripen at some point in the future. See, what's interesting is the Buddha did not say, I can see that there are multiple lifetimes and therefore you all should believe me. He, he, he gave a kind of a reasoned you know, approach to, he says, you know, by necessity, for the purposes of having a, a kind of helpful um, understanding, you should you know, believe because it makes you right, more careful with your actions. Harming others, mm-hmm. causing harm, mm-hmm. causing harm to ourselves, causing harm to other people. That's terrible. All of Buddhist ethics, all of Buddhist, you know, kind of moral ethical training, yeah, is summarized in "Do no harm." Do no harm, including. Don't let your self-righteous moral stance cause harm to others. We know how that works. And so he says, so Buddha identified uh, 10 kind of obstacles to awakening. The first two, the most basic one, one is called... um, Wrong, wrong understanding of cause and effect. Yeah. That causing harm can bring, you know, happiness. For example, is one type of that. And secondly, it's called um, blind adherence to customs and traditions and rituals. And within like situations of 
impossibility where like no matter what you do will cause harm is it just defaults to cause less harm at this point yes until you develop all the skills and the power to not cause any harm then in a way yes as long as we are still in a state of confusion uh, we cause harm and so we have to choose the lesser harm and not to think that you know uh, we can have a position where there's no harm no there's always some kind of harm <laughs> and like what about the concept of guilt like how do you deal with that because we live in a society where we're like basically constantly causing harm just by existing you know mm-hmm. like driving cars and yes smoking cigarettes and buying meat yes and yes like pharmaceutical companies yes etc like what about uh, I think but that was quite uh, um, realistic in how to handle this and so he says that you begin at the level of get yourself out of directly causing harm so you do that you do that until that's pretty second nature then you can work on indirectly causing harm and so I, I think he, he gave a very kind of practical approach Unfortunately, I feel sometimes these days kind of in certain presentations of like the spiritual path, it seems like it's zero or hundred. You know, unless you can do hundred, you know, what's the point of doing two? But if you look at the Buddha's teachings, it's, it's all very kind of like you do what you can. And so you begin with yeah, the most kind of uh, the, the coarser aspects of that training. So I'll give one example. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, we say that the Buddha's teachings are divided into three levels. Now we call it the lesser vehicle, the greater vehicle, and the indestructible vehicle. Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. Uh, often people think these are three different forms of Buddhism, but I think that's a mistaken understanding. It's not talking about other Buddhist traditions. It's talking about within the Tibetan Buddhist kind of path. These are three levels of subtlety. And they say necessarily you begin with the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana. Lesser in the sense of focus on yourself. Then when you understand how this particular mess Operates, then you can reasonably think about benefiting others. So I gave the example to some uh, in in one teaching to some friends. I think in Malaysia, Little Rock. It's all fuzzy now. <laughs> Little Rock, Malaysia. What's the difference? <laughs> uh, and that's because it's technology, right? I just stare into Skype. I mean, I don't know. Today is it Peru or is it Malaysia? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, so this is about I said on the Hinayana level it says that uh, mm, Buddha says that don't directly cause harm so don't uh, so this is specifically about the issue of uh, uh, here is the issue of uh, to eat meat or not you know so on the Hinayana level uh, and 
he says, that which you have not like killed yourself, in other words, it's, it's not saying go find someone else to kill it for you. It's saying don't, don't go kill it yourself. Yeah? Because you want to avoid the direct cause of harm. So he says, um, if you don't, if you didn't instruct someone to do it, right, and if you didn't like you know, clap and cheer that it has been killed, right, and if it is just given to you by someone else, right, then he says that you can eat. Yeah? So that's like uh, because uh, there's a practical side to this. This is these instructions were given to his monks who went on bagging rafts. Yeah, so he says, whatever that's put in your bowl, right? you, you, you eat for sustenance. Yeah? Uh, but you, you, you cannot, yeah, you cannot like go in the village and go, ooh, fried chicken smells really good. <laughs> you know, then, you know, he says, then you're, you know, you're closer involved in, you know, harming something. Yeah, so no, right? So you, whatever put in your bowl, you eat. So from that, so if you can do at least the Hinayana level, he says, that's very good. But don't stop there, he says. So Mahayana level. Mahayana level, he says, then you have to train so that you even say, no, I just will not eat. I just will not eat. Because to eat or to use is it causes harm. So that's that's good. That's really good. You know? Not eat ever. Yes. And and not cause harm. Or not use even. Huh? Leather and all of that. Oh, yeah? No. Yeah? Not use, not eat, you know. Not do anything that, that is directly or indirectly causing harm. Yeah? So very good, he says. Then he says, now on the Vajrayana level as long as you still perceive others as not Buddhists, you have harmed them. So you have to then work on even, not even for a moment thinking, oh, that's just, you know, Bob over there, it doesn't matter. He said, even a thought like that you have already killed that person. Wow. It's sort of like Jesus talking about, right? If your eyes look, you know, with lust, you've already committed. <laughs> yeah, not in the legal, you know, court of law. You know, you can look lustily at anything and anyone as long as you don't act upon it. Right? So on a, on a basic common human decency level, you know, at least fulfill that. You know, all your secret fantasies, keep it to yourself. Don't act that out. But not enough, he says. Next level, you want to work on getting rid of those, you know, very illicit fantasies that you have. And then, even to perceive anyone as ordinary is already harming. So there are levels and levels. And it says, you train yourself. Now, if you say, I'm now going to 
you know, adopt a particular diet and lifestyle that I absolutely do not use. You know, any animals cause any harm. In in actual, in in kind of terms, in the terms of like on the other side, I think you know, of course, it's good. You know, the the cow and the you know chicken would look at you more kindly. <laughs> yeah, but then if you know living that lifestyle means you are mean to everyone <laughs> that has to interact with you, then there's still quite a bit of work to do. Like not the interior. Yeah. You don't have the exterior, yes. Yes. Not the interior, right. yes. Right. So you like start by not being mean? Yes. So... <laughs> So, you know, as a matter of full disclosure, you know, I'm not a vegetarian. And I have a hard time, you know. <laughs> so I'm so attached to... It's terrible. You know? uh, but uh, minimize, you know, that's possible. You know, minimize, that's possible. And then try to be nicer to people. Or kind, not just nice, I mean... Nice is kind of dangerous in the South. It could mean all sorts of things. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> the beginning of complaints, right? It's exterior if you're not really feeling it on the inside, but being nice to people. But also we should recognize, yeah, so the nice part, you know, not actually kind. Uh, but, but of course, you know, I think uh, if you were a cow or a chicken, you know, maybe it's said, well, I don't care if you actually mean it or not, as long as you don't eat me. <laughs> I, I see that too, you know. It's like, I could care less if you're a nice person or not. <laughs> Just don't eat me. <laughs> you know? So I, I get that. You know? it's, it's hard. It's complicated. <laughs> yes? Um, this is, it's a little bit off this topic, but... I think we've gone far enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm I'm wondering with the sukha and dukkha, if what is the relationship with that and sitting and being in the world? Like, can sukha only be experienced while sitting? No. No. Yeah. Good. 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 Good question. Yes. Yes. Uh, no, definitely Buddha didn't even wouldn't even agree with that. Uh, but but sitting practice is sitting practice is a um, contrived, artificially constructed um, kind of training ground. It's what it is. It's all that it is. You know, Buddha knows that. Uh, you can't have a hundred percent germ-free, sterile environment for you know surgeries. But you certainly don't want to perform surgery in the sewer. Uh, likewise, the point is actually to be in the world awake but that wakefulness for many of us is hard 
to experience. When you're crossing the road, updating your status, (laughs) and trying to eat your muffin, and remain aware. It's harder. So then we say, let's sit, you know, half an hour a day. Let's sit, you know, twice a day, 15 minutes. And then from time to time, let's do a weekend intensive. Let's do a 10-day intensive. Because the mind is very subtle. As you go more into it, there are more and more subtle levels of the mind. I mean, just think about, I mean, like outside the context of meditation, right? Just think about intentionality. How often do we do something or not do something because of one intention? Right? If we even look at any case of thinking about intentionality, quickly we see how complex and complicated it is. And if that's the case, you know, when we really want to work on rerouting, that's another way of looking at what training the mind is, is rerouting habits. Yeah, we have an internal network where our energy kind of travels down. These circuits, right? Through our confused habits, it has been routed to kind of move in particular ways and directions, and resulting in pretty predictable results. Some of those results we like, and some of those results we don't like. Then, of course, some of those results we like it on some days and not on some other days. What formal meditation does is to reroute this network. It will still be the same energy moving and traveling and being distributed, but different networks resulting in different places. So formal meditation is a process of patiently, skillfully, slowly rerouting these networks and pathways, these habits that they have. So, founder of the lineage I'm a part of, he says, meditation is not meditation. Meditation is habituation. So even in his time, in the 12th century, when people use the word meditation, people are like, Ooh. Yeah, oh, wow. So he, wants, he wanted to demystify. He says, meditation is not, ooh. <laughs> meditation is just changing habits. Right now, we have habits of confusion and habits of unhappiness. Formal meditation is learning and habituating, more importantly, habits of clarity and habits of happiness. 
If you say I cannot meditate, you are saying I don't know how to habituate. Ha ha, big fat liar. <laughs> it's not true. Yeah. We already have the skill. It's just now we are routing that skill in a different direction. So let's talk about breath, right? So many of us say, let's start with breath meditation. Awareness of breath. A lot of the instructions that you might come across will say, just watch your breath. Just watch it. Don't do anything. Don't try to change it. Just watch your breath. And what happens? You start controlling it. Sometimes, and but if you actually did that, usually what happens? You get bored and you fall asleep. Snoring. <laughs> why? Because why? I mean, other than you're physically exhausted. I mean, and 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 that's why they say don't meditate. At the end of the day, that's just a general advice because some of us are actually quite alive at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. They meditate at the end of the day. Yes. Yeah? So the instructions that say, you know, begin meditation at four a.m. Well, this was like before light bulbs were invented. So people get up at four. You know, wide awake. Yeah. So anyway. So why, why is it? Like these instructions on watching breath. Why do you fall asleep? Why do you get distracted? Why do you get bored? Because it's not very interesting. <laughs> why is it not interesting? Why is breath not interesting? It's too simple. Too simple. It's always there. Hmm? It's always there. Take it for granted. You have a habit of wanting entertainment. You have a habit of wanting entertainment. Yes. Right. Now, it's also the case that you don't find it interesting. You find other things more interesting because... You don't know it. Breath. And part of the problem uh, in actually, I feel, the instructions that you were given. It's like, anchor your attention on your breath, but don't have any interest in it. (laughs) They are conflicting instructions. Like, passively watch your breath. (laughs) Don't passively watch your breath. You know, it's it's like, it's like, I I say this is a a, a real kind of like Buddhist problem. It's detachment before it's the right time for detachment. There, there is this kind of wrong view, I'll state it very strongly out there, that because Buddhists have no attachment, 
all of us, as soon as we can, we should walk around pretending we have no attachments. Including no attachment to the practice. Oh, don't get attached, don't get attached. When was the last time you started an endeavor that you succeeded in by saying, don't get attached, don't get attached, don't get attached, don't get attached? Doesn't work! At the beginning, you should be curious about breath. Now, how do you get curious about breath? So you begin by paying attention to the sensations that breath brings. For example, there are many ways of doing it. Yeah, so you just watch, you know. As breath fills your lungs, you know, what's that feeling? You know, those sensations. And in fact, sensations of pleasure. Subtle, very subtle. You know? Very subtle. But when you tune into the subtlety, you actually feel it. Mm. It's like... Oh yeah, experiment. Experiment, right. Try at the beginning, you know. Experiment with breath. If you're going to use breath as your object for meditating, which is actually because you always have it, it's such a good one. Yeah? Or some people might have a pebble that they put and then they look at. Some people might have the image of the Buddha or the image of Odin. I don't know. Right? Whatever, right? To kind of keep your attention. But breath, because you have it all the time. And when you don't have it, then you don't need to meditate. (laughs) But first, play with breath. Play with it enough for you to be interested in it. That's sort of the subtleties of breath. I do not have and have not developed the ability to differentiate the subtleties between a 399 or was it 299 tall shore wine and a $20 a bottle and a $190 a bottle they're all blech to me <laughs> but people take classes and courses to be able to go Ooh, Melanie with a hint of oak uh, assuming they're not making it up and I do believe they're not they're, they're training their tongue Right? To be sensitive to, to to kind of engage the layers and layers of flavors that might be there. In the same way, we have to start off with a curiosity about this object called breath. So do not be dispassionate to the object. So as, as a beginning, you know, you try. Like, 
Then slow. Then fast. Then, then at some other point, you can say, okay, I'm just going to watch. If, if particularly that day you find that you know, you're a little bit exhausted, but not so exhausted that you know you absolutely can't sit, you still want to sit, then don't do the dispassionate watching. Do the one where you say, I want to pay attention to how the lungs feel when breath comes in. And so you might actually control your breath by taking deep, long, slow breath, like And hold it. Hold until you you feel you're not comfortable. But not not you think you're not comfortable, right? Get away from thinking. Feel like uncomfortable. Like like what? What are the sensations I'm talking? You know that that kind of leads to the label uncomfortable. Pay attention to that. Then exhale. And then inhale. Hold. Exhale. And then when you exhale, right? right? There's a certain relief. A certain openness. Feel that openness. But then, your openness, you cannot continue to open. Right? You also now need to gather in. And just watch that opening out. Gathering in. Opening out, gathering in, dying, being born, dying, being born. Yes, so then slowly, when you gain ability for breath to be an engaging subject, the point again is not that there's some magic at breath. Although, in order to make it interesting, you might invest it with magical properties yeah, to make, make you kind of like, you know, this subject. See, that's why in Buddhist texts it says, you also meditate on the image of a Buddha. Well, that is if an image of a Buddha is inspiring to you. Right? It's not going to work very well, you know, if you go give it some, to someone who, I don't know, when they were three, a Buddha fell on their head. <laughs> and so, you know, they've been traumatized by a Buddha image. So it's not going to work very well. I mean, it'll make them focus, but, you know, focus in a terrified way. That's not good. But more than anything, I would say, is being able to practice with others. That's important. That's important, being able to practice with others. It's like going to the gym. If you don't have someone to sort of hold you accountable, and if you're not a gym rat, you know, then you're like, eh, I don't know, I don't feel like doing it. <laughs> uh, but then you're like, but I want to look like that. <laughs> so that's why you might have a picture of a Buddha. I want to look like that. 
It might inspire you a little bit, but you know, it's not the same as somebody you know knocking on the door and say, "Okay, let's go meditate now." <laughs> you know, get someone to pick you up. You know, and uh, won't so easily let you go. Oh, I'm busy. You know, you're busy. More so. Come. <laughs> It depends, right? It depends on you. Whether it's sensation, whether it's uh, breath, whether it's Buddha image, yet the whole point. Okay, now then, the whole point is to gather our attention, gather our attention into one point. When attention begins to gather into one point. A different sensation arises, and the sensation now is no longer dependent on uh, physical necessarily. Right? Now it's a sensation of quiet and peace that is very kind of pleasing. Not exciting, but pleasing, and really at ease. Like, it's just completely quiet. The whole world kind of seems to have, you know, disappeared. And at the same time, you feel like you are the whole world. Then, delight in. Give give yourself permission. Again, don't like you know. Ooh, don't get attached. Don't get attached. Don't get attached. You 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 are undermining yourself if you apply don't get attached too early in the game. We've all read about you know. This is the unfortunate thing. A lot of very kind of advanced, profound instructions are easily kind of available in books. So then you read that and you think that applies in your case, right? and think don't get attached, don't get attached, don't get attached. <laughs> no, you you have to see, you know, why why is it pleasurable? How is this quiet space right? really, you know, pleasurable? And. You're at ease. Then, when you gain more ability in having your mind kind of withdraw and stay, yeah. Then, with that basic sense of well-being, with that basic sense of well-being, with that basic sense of Being at ease, right? Then you can begin to note the activities of the heart, the activities of the mind. 
then you don't have to work so hard or intentionally to always keep the mind kind of anchored. Now you can let thoughts just kind of come up naturally and just let them go wherever they go. How's that insight? The beginning of developing insight. The beginning of developing a deeper, what is insight, insight, insight? You know, people talk about insight meditation, insight meditation. It's the beginning of recognizing how the mind works. And then you begin to see how frequently you go from the mind source to the mind ends. You go from the heart to the activities of the heart. So these are some terminology. Different teachers use term, different terminologies that I'm kind of pulling from. You're beginning to see the heart and the activities of the heart. You begin to see the mind source and the mind ends. Then you begin... Then, then in a way, you could say, the more it moves the more it offers you opportunity to develop insight. If it is not moving at all, it, in fact, it might be hard to develop insight. <laughs> That's the funny part. You see, that is when, if you, if you, even when you get to the point where your mind can blissfully kind of shut down, so to say, right? Oh, so good to be home. <laughs> only when you're able to get to that point then the instructions of don't get attached that's when you apply that which is saying don't think that just because you're home that crazy 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 world is not there and you can't just stay at home all the time uh, you cannot have the spiritual equivalent of stay at home and eat Cheetos the whole day. <laughs> Might be blissful, but the robbers are going to figure out how to come in. Yeah? So, But first you have to be able to develop the ability to come home anytime you want and to get into that space of completely you're at ease rest and nothing can disturb you then deliberately you want to watch how the mind moves and the more the mind moves the more understanding will arise Then, whether you're inside or outside, whether it's quiet or noisy, you're awake. That's the awakening that we're talking about, the Buddha. Then you're awake. But 
as as a kind of attitude, yeah, you should not say, "Oh, and then after five years I'll be awake." So so that at any moment that you're practicing, if you if you ever get distracted, like, "Oh, what would awakening be?" Yeah, remember, to to sit is to be awake. And and sit no longer just means sit. Right? Sit here means yeah, to do anything that you do to train the mind. Uh, every moment spent on attending to the mind, that the heart mind, that is awakening. That is awakening. And that's to protect yourself from you know, being distracted by concepts of awakening and then forget to wake up. Right? Within the dream you add another layer of dream. Right? You you could in a dream dream about waking up and within a dream waking up from the dream. Those are two different things. Find a comfortable posture to sit in, whether you're sitting on the pews, on the chairs, or on the floor. Uh, to be comfortable means that you are seated, stable, with your weight equally distributed, so that you're not placing unnecessary pressure into one part of the body or the other. So kind of sit down, sway around a little bit, move around a little bit, thinking of it as if it's a pendulum swinging until the pendulum finds that still point, that quiet point. And in that way, let your body settle. But don't think of the body settling as like a pile of like a, like a heavy coat being dropped and then you know it kind of becomes a pile. Instead, think of the body perhaps as a gigantic bell, seated, unmoving on the ground. There is weight to it, but there's also presence to it. Your eyes can either be closed or open. If they are open, let your gaze fall into that space about a foot to two feet in front of you. If they're closed, open them when you become sleepy or even sometimes when thoughts proliferate 
You might slightly open your eyes, and that could help in slowing down the rush of thoughts. Feel the sensations in your body. Just using a mental scan and see if certain sensations are stronger than certain other sensations. And once you have identified the very explicit and strong sensation, place your mind there. Focus on that sensation. Don't think about the sensation, but feel that sensation and recognize the sensation. Do not use labels as good or bad, desirable or undesirable, but simply recognize the sensation of being there. Now let your awareness pervade your entire body. Try to place your awareness all over your skin so that that very last place where you ends and the space begins, pay attention to that contact point between your skin and space.
Then if you find that your attention is too scattered, then withdraw your awareness from the skin and have that awareness gather inside and inside and inside. Gather all the way inside until your awareness is resting on your breath. And in particular, where breath enters your nostril and where breath leaves the body through your nostril. Focus on that point.
Sometimes it seems like it's forever in a good way. Sometimes it seems like it's forever in a bad way. <laughs> when you said that your teacher, how long did you sit in meditation over the temple? Say say that again. When you visit your teacher or your in other countries? Oh, we just chit chat. We don't sit. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, particularly in the Tibetan tradition, uh, there is very little group sit. Because they strict, you know, uh, it's not kind of known. I mean, in the West, Tibetan Buddhist groups and centers kind of modify and adapt and do things differently. But in, in the more like traditional Tibetan monasteries, um, this kind of seated meditation, there's a feeling that it's not for most people. Only the savants of the tradition, after a lot of legwork, meaning legwork, like prostrations, full body prostrations, right? After completing three, four hundred thousand of those, then they say, now you have what it takes to sit. And so that's why they don't have group sits, because there aren't that many people with that foundation. And so then when they do train in meditation, often it's one-on-one instruction. And you go back to your kind of your retreat house or hut, and you do it. And so there isn't group. Now, among Thai, mm, Korean, and you know, Chinese, uh, those who do meditate, uh, they, they have a tradition of group sit. So all the Zen traditions have group sit traditions. Uh, then in Theravada, like Thai, Sri Lanka, and Burma, in the last century, meditation has been popularized to the laity. Uh, otherwise, again... Don't you know? Not just laity, but even in the monastery, there's not that much group sit. Monasteries tend to engage more in studying. Yeah. But but these days, you you could go to Southeast Asia and and go to specific monasteries that have programs in you know daily sitting and and training people. And then there are some monasteries where they don't have those programs. Um, then you can go, and they will give you a place to stay, and they just leave you alone. And then you're left alone, and you go nuts. And <laughs> Get me out of here! What about Indian Buddhism? Isn't there like a big tradition of Westerners going. I actually lived in India, but I never did any of the. Indian Buddhism uh, basically disappeared for a long time. So modern Indian Buddhism is just starting back up. So I think what you're thinking of is more other Buddhist traditions that are kind of have, you know, communities in India, like Tibetan mm-hmm. or uh, the other one very popular by an Indian man that is of Burmese like uh, background mm-hmm. is Goenkaji 
he has, you know, but these are modern movements, basically. Mm-hmm. So you can go on a 10-day sit with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these are modern, you know, 20th century revivals or 20th century developments where more and more this kind of seated meditation is now being done by non-monastics, mm-hmm. by the laity. It's, it's fairly recent, this development. That's kind of cool. It's like relating to the thing you were saying about the third layer of the teachings and seeing everyone as the Buddha. Uh-huh. Instead yeah. of having this differentiation between laity but it's not necessarily the differentiation is not necessarily um, something that you know the elites are uh, holding back and not willing it's 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 uh, not surprisingly there's modern movements of like laity meditating coincided with the rise of the middle class in Asia leisure has appeared as a category of time. Mm-hmm. And so initially, this leisure is spent at malls. Mm-hmm. And then when malls don't deliver, <laughs> then people think maybe meditation hall would deliver. <laughs> yeah, so, so then even like monastery... Uh, we, we imagine monasteries is where everybody is meditating, and that's also not the case. Again, even in monastery, leisure is a commodity that's hard to come by. Because somebody has to sweep, somebody has to cook, somebody has to repair, somebody has to fundraise, somebody has to keep the books, that's a lot of work. Um, and like here, you know. Um, there's a number of people here, they all tell you, I, I don't come here to meditate, I come here to work. So that other people can come meditate when they feel like it. That's a lot of work to, to keep Evan Dharma doing what it does. Uh, and in that sense, it's quite amazing, you know. Your parents didn't drop you off here at four and because you need to eat, then you're willing to work for the monastery until you figure out a way to run away from the monastery, at least. <laughs> or, you know, you grow up and you gain an appreciation and you choose to stay. But everything is new here and all these wonderful volunteers who come here you know, to keep this place running, they don't owe this place anything. You know? But the reality is like, somebody pays bills, somebody sweeps, somebody cleans, somebody arranges the cushions. So leisure is hard to come by for. For the very people that are kind of like running the place. <laughs> but yeah, you know, if you look at meditation movements, it's the rise of the middle class that has made meditation into mass movements. 
So I say, you know, if you can't meditate in the United States, nowhere else you can meditate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have friends, you know, like in cities, no doubt, in Asia. You, know. you think you're busy, you just wait and look at them. I mean, like Japan, well-known, you know, right? Kids. It's kind of sad. I, I, I think things have kind of changed, but, uh, you know, my friends talk about how anecdotally, you know, uh, like when teachers tell you know, yeah, students, you know, draw a picture of dad. And I'm like, don't know, never seen him. Because their work is such that most, what they call salary man, right? People work for corporations and companies. Uh, after work, you're, you are to socialize with your co-workers because that's, that's your kind of unit. So they don't come back until the children has gone to sleep. And then the children wake up. By the time they wake up, you know, very early to go to school, either the father has already left because of the commute or the father is still asleep. And then they work six days a week. On Sundays, you know, dad is asleep, catching up on sleep. So many parts of Asia, you know, there isn't that kind of leisure. <laughs> so here, comparatively, there's a lot of leisure. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, because of our culture, we need to fill that leisure. <laughs> so then we get a, you know, written organizer or electronic organizer now, of course, once you have the organizer, you have to fill all the blocks. <laughs> Otherwise, it looks like you're not being productive. And that's very anti-American for the unproductive. But here, you know, all the conditions are right you know, for attending to kind of the inner life. But we have too many things to do. So, I know it's not easy, but uh, if you don't treat tending to the inner life as one of many things you have to do, then your work of tending to the inner life will not be in conflict with the other things that you do. In other words, if you're able to make tending to your inner life as the underlying place from which everything else happens, then, you know, then it's easy. But if it's scheduled in between, you know, I don't know, hot yoga and Pilates, then, you know, it's going to be like, I can only do this much and not this much, right? So how do, you, how do we make it kind of like the underlying? That comes from, you know, changing attitudes. Changing attitudes. 
so that the inner and outer, you know, is small, kind of woven together better. Then, making the journey to come here is the practice. You know, rather than I hate it that I have to drive around to get here. Then you know, it's always practice is always somewhere else. Then finally, when you get here, you you you're already thinking about you know what you need to do at four. Or at four thirty, so we're never arriving. We're always in transit. And so we have this kind of clunky term in our liturgical books called migrators. Drawa <laughs> in Tibetan is a literal translation: migrators or wanderers, those who wander. This is not the no, you know, not those who wander are lost. You know, this wanderer mean kind of aimlessly wandering. Uh, migrators, we say, and that's the idea. There is that we never arrive, you know. But we're always becoming. We're never being. Uh, but I've I've lived in Asia. I go there a lot. I come here a lot, and I'm here a lot. And I can say, you know, like really, you know, we have a lot of leisure here. We just have to kind of figure out how to. Fold this in, so that it's not one of many things that we do, but it's the underlying place from when we do other things. Then, at the beginning, don't make your sittings your spiritual practice. Uh, don't create unnecessary conflict, you know, between that and whatever else that you're doing. That is in part why you know we don't have uh, like regularly scheduled programs on Sunday mornings. <laughs> when we started this place, you know, because a lot of Buddhist centers or church, you know, like borrowing from the church model, right? We'll have Sunday morning practice or service. I said, I am not confident that I can compete with. People Sunday New York Times and brunch. <laughs> so why create unnecessary competition where you know you are going to lose? Like having service on Sunday mornings. No. Uh, we tend to do Saturday and Sunday afternoons. At least in my opinion, those are like dead zone. Between two and five on Saturday and Sundays. Kind of like, you know, people in the family. Kind of everybody's doing their own thing at that point. And if errands need to be run, if whatever, that's usually in the morning. And then if some sort of socializing, that's usually in the evening. Then there's some sort of dead zone. Of course, generalizing. But likewise, in you establishing a, a practice, you know, you know, forget about what other people tell you is the optimal point time to meditate. This time, that time. I mean, listen to that and experiment. Try it, and then you have to be proactive in figuring out what works for you. That's important. And like I said, you know, to be able to check in with a group, 
and to sit once a week, twice a week. That helps. Because doing inner work, right? If we don't, if we're not careful about it, and that happens a lot, you turn into very spiritual a holes. <laughs> Because you turn inwards and you say, you know, to hell with others. So that's why you have to check in with the community. Because they will remind you, you're still not very pleasant to be around. (laughs) There's more work. See, if you just do it at home, and, you know, assuming, you know, most people have other people in their lives at home, but what happens with this, those other people, they're like, she's doing her thing. <laughs> so they leave you alone. Then you think everything is fine. So, so that's why kind of spiritual community is important. Not because, you know, and it will be wrong to think that every time you go there, you know, there will be group hugs. But also because, you know, they'll annoy you. And then you, you have a way to check, you know, like, okay, it's a little bit more work to do. <laughs> it's, it's good to be grounded. Yeah. Because so much of, I think, like, what is kind of being, being sold and peddled around is that you, know, you can do your own thing. And because that really appeals to a particular side of American identity, the can-do Lone Ranger, and I don't need other people, that, well, that's part of the problem. <laughs> and so, find a community, really. It doesn't have to be here. Uh, probably not going to be here yeah, for some of you. But find, find your community. There are many groups here that support this kind of inner work. Uh, find a healthy community and, you know, go as often as you can uh, and be kind of grounded by them. That's good. Thank you for listening to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting our mission to foster a deeper understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, to build meaningful community, and to integrate contemplative teachings into everyday life. We invite you to make a donation online at udharmanc.com or make a purchase at our store, tibetanspirit.com. Thank you. May all beings benefit.